Once again, I'd like to welcome everyone to Forest Community Church's 2019 Thanksgiving Sunday worship. Among all U.S. holidays, I love Thanksgiving most for two reasons. First off, Thanksgiving is the ultimate expression of a Christian faith. Christianity is all about God's goodness and greatness and our gratitude. It's all about heaven. And as a result, gratitude is intrinsic to a Christian identity and life. G.K. Chesterton once said, either you take everything for granted, if you don't believe in God, you just take everything for granted or grumbling, or if you believe in God, who created everything out of nothing, then you take everything for gratitude. Gratitude is the deeply embedded in Christian faith. The word gratitude came from the Latin word gratis, which means free. So gratitude came from God's free love for us. Amen? Second reason that I love Thanksgiving is Thanksgiving means home. When most, this is when most Americans travel to be with their families. How many of you are traveling the Thanksgiving? Let me let me see your hands. Just okay. See, okay. Why you? When, whenever pastors to raise your hand, people raise a hand like this. Are, are you a uh, you know? Okay. Anyway, Thanksgiving and home go together, like a turkey and mashed potato and stuffing. And the place I believe that neither Thanksgiving more than any places is home. Family without mutual Thanksgiving is not a healthy family. And family with a mutual gratitude and Thanksgiving is a truly rich. And they are richer than any wealthy family in this world without gratitude. Amen? So today, I want to share with you how to make a Thanksgiving a permanent experience in our home. I want to talk about how we can make our home permanent thankful place. Not just for the Thanksgiving week, but for throughout our life. For that, God gave us his instruction and inspiration to love one another at home. And that passage comes from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 to 9. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 to 9. Actually, this is a continuation of our last week's uh, message, which comes from Ephesians chapter 5. This whole section, chapter 5 to chapter 6, 9, is so-called the household code. So biblical or Paul's you know, instruction about uh, how family is supposed to relate to one another. And uh, I really encourage you to, those of you who missed last Sunday, check it out, the, uh, the first sermon, first message about the marriages, that are holy matrimony. Now, let's read this passage responsibly. Bro uh, uh, brothers and sisters, let's read it once again. Let's read it, brothers and sisters. So today, sisters, you go first. Okay, sisters, you guys ready? One, two, three. Honor your father and mother, which is a first commandment with a promise. So that they may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children, 
Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eyes is on you, but as a slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. Last week, you know, I talked about the marriage relationship, and the key idea about the relationship is mutual respect and submission, right? And somebody told me, oh, Pastor Paul, I learned that now I can submit to my wife out of love, not out of fear. <laughs> That's a great, great, you know, blessing. Once again, the key, you know, uh, Christian, you know, a healthy relationship, healthy Christian relationship is, uh, what is that, the triangle? Isosceles, yeah. Isosceles, you know, triangle that uh, you know, it's a three three party. God is in the middle. As we get close to the center angle, you get close to the other angle. And uh, when we put God into the center, God create a different matrix of a family relationship. And when we follow God's precepts, God's instruction, and in you know, God's promises. God will build healthy, thankful, happy family. And that's what I want to share with you today. And today I have a three points. First is a child, and second is about the parents, and third is about all of us as a church. Now, first of all about the child. Paul said in verse 1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for, the, for this is right. Obeying parents is just like uh, later, you know, obeying the masters or earlier, the, you know, uh, submitting to your husband. These are already assumed and the practiced uh, in Greco-Roman time. It was uh, actually legal obligation and cultural norm at the time to obey the parents. That's why Paul said, obey your parents for it is right. You know, it is right. But here we need to know that obeying parents in ancient Greco-Roman world is very different from obeying parents in today's world. You know, today's children, I'm glad that they are out, most of them are out, so we can talk frankly. You know, they obey commands of uh, you know, us, their parents, for their own good. What are the commands we ask them to obey? Eat vegetables. You know, stop watching too much TV or playing with a smartphone. Do the homework. You know, go to bed on time. Get up and don't be late for the school. Is this a really command? This is a, you know, it's a good for them, right? Everything we ask for them is actually... I feel like uh, as a, today's parents, we, especially in the suburb, sub, or suburban you know, setting, we are more suburbans than parents. 
I feel sometimes some of my kids, they say something and I just want to say, are you calling Mr. Wilson? <laughs> you, know, you know, if you don't know what the reference is, that a head of the servant in the Downton Abbey, you know? So, am I a Mr. Wilson to you? <laughs> you know? And, uh, oh, I just want to say, let me give you one uh, strong, I mean, one very, I mean, free parental advice to the parents. Don't serve your children too much. It doesn't do good to them. If you love your children, don't cater to their wishes too much. That's the mistake, the greatest mistake the suburban parents make. You know, in my experience, when my children, I have two of them here, when they complain, especially about, ah, oh, you know, getting up late and, you know, schools and all this, and whenever, especially when they complain about school, I say, yeah, you don't have to go to school. Why? Why? Why do you have to go to school? You have other alternate homeschool. It's available. I'm your father is a PhD. I can educate you. Of course, I don't do any homeschool. You know, if they chose to, you know, and then this. Okay, I'm I'm giving you very expensive advice here because this is a priceless advice. You know, when your children are a little bit older, like a fourth, fifth grader, and they complain or whatever, you know, I used to say, you're not going to school tomorrow. If you behave like this, you stay home. You're going to be a false academic. <laughs> and they said, mm, really? I said, no, you don't go to school. And then next day morning, guess what? You're not going to school today. You're staying here. And then, you know, I, I shared this testimony, I mean, this advice before, and this our parents told me that my children will love that, uh, that idea. For them, that's a dream come true. They will love to stay and you know, play all day. You know what I will say? Then you go to the second round. Bore them to death. Actually, you know, this is a chicken game. Who, who, who is more scared? Keep them in the house and let them do anything. I mean, let them, I mean, let them just play all day. Maybe not just one day, next day. Let them play. Let them miss the school. And then let them feel. Boredom is really, really worse than anything else. Bore them to death. That's not my advice. You know why I say this? I didn't go to high school for two years. I had to work to take care of a family. And that two years of absence of school in my life did a great thing for me. I had a greatest motivation to study. Desperation, because <laughs> I don't want to be uneducated, dumb people, dumb person. And, 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 you know, <coughs> desperation, and then also determination. So parents, suburban parents, we cater to our children too much. And watch out. Now, ancient scope of a children's obedience was very extensive and severely enforced. Unlike a present day, where adult children usually leave home. Ancient times, several generations lived under one roof. And even then, the adult married male and his family, they were accountable to the father, in this case, a grandfather. And grandfather had an unconditional authority to do everything. He can arrange marriage of his children and grandchildren. He actually determines which, which infants to survive. 
most common ancient form, I mean, most common form of abortion in ancient Greco-Roman world was uh, when child was born, you just to leave them in the roadside. That's it. You know, they don't have an abortion clinic like today. They just, you know, abandon the baby. Children did not choose their careers. They just worked where their parents told them. Their welfare lifestyle was utterly dependent on their, you know, their, by the way, not the parents. Today, did you notice the fathers? Mothers are not included. Mothers have no, you know, no parental authority back then. It's all fathers. What we call today parental abuse was a very common reality in Greco-Roman world. Then, now, the question is, why does Paul repeat the, the, the same legal responsibility and cultural uh, norm of children that everybody already know in his letter? Why? Why did he say, children, obey your parents, for that is uh, legally right, your responsibility, and it's, you know, it's a good thing. Once again, as you just remember last time, Paul was actually empowering children with the promise of the Lord. Paul wants to give a children, you also make, can make a family <laughs> thankful and grateful place. You are not, pastor, you are not just, you know, uh, uh, powerless sort of, uh, you know, members. You are, un, you know, un, um, whatever. You, 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 you are not inferior members of a household. Paul was encouraging Today's a text. Children and slaves, they have a role to play. And Paul is basically creating different family dynamics here. Uh, to make it clear, let me just say this. Starting from 500 before Christ, in the Mediterranean world, mostly you know, Greece and the Palestine, you know, cultures, they all recognize a family is a basic unit, unit of a society. So many people wrote the uh, so-called uh, how to run family. And, uh, and I just want to give you one uh, example of that. The famous philosopher named Aristotle. Aristotle, have you heard of name Aristotle, right? Okay. Aristotle, he... Aristotle, do you know whose, uh, whose disciple was Aristotle? Who was his teacher? Plato. And whose teacher was uh, Plato? Um, Socrates. By the way, who is Aristotle's uh, disciple? He has many disciples, but most famous disciple? Alexander. Oh, well, we have a well, you know, well, first people here. All right. Aristotle was called the philosopher during the medieval time, and he influenced Christian theology more than anybody. And Aristotle wrote a book called Politics. There, he said this. Of a household, management, we have seen that three are three parts. One is a rule of a master of a slaves. Another of a father. Third of a husband. A husband and father rules over wife and children, both free. But rule differs. The rule over his children being a royal and over his wife a constitutional rule. For although there may be exceptions, to the order of nature, the male is by nature fitter to command than the female, just as older and full-grown is superior to the younger and more immortal. What he was basically saying, fathers, 
are superior than mothers. And husbands are superior, our well, fathers are superior than children and also superior than you know, the, the, the wife. So they are all talking about, there was no mention of a children's role. It's simply all the uh, Greco-Roman, even Jewish words about the how to run family, it just empowered the fathers, the men, head of the family, has absolute sovereignty about everybody because he is whatever, physically superior, intellectually superior, you name it. Paul, today, he's bringing, he's actually de debunking the sovereign role and authority of a father and husband and master and actually plays the, the key word in this story, in this passage, which is the Lord. The one word repeated the most is, a, children obey your parents in the Lord. Parents don't exasperate your children, but raise them up in the ways of the Lord. Slave, obey your master as unto the Lord or Christ. Masters, remember you have your own Lord. Lord, Lord, Lord. This is a key. So Paul is a recreating, creating remix, remix of a family. Someone said Paul is a creating true spiritual family. Now, about the children, he had uh, the verse 2. He has to honor your father and mother. Not just obey, honor your father and mother which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and you may enjoy long life on the earth. He was basically quoting Exodus 19, which he talks about 10 commandments. Do you remember 10 commandments, right? Moses came down from the Sinai with a whatever tablet with 10 commandments. Out of 10 commandments, the fifth commandment is the only, command, only commandment with a promise. Other commandment. Like, do not, make, do not make other God before me. You know, do not make an idol. Do not take my name vain. You know, uh, keep the holy Sabbath so holy. That's the you know, first section of a commandment about God. And the rest, sixth commandment, is about human beings, right? Out of sixth commandment about the human relationship, and also entire ten commandment, only the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother in the Lord then you will live a long life in the land that I'm leading to you. Today, long life is a given. Back then, long life is a rare. And then, then long life is not just individual life. What, what Moses and the Paul is according here is that in the land, the promised land that God is leading you, it requires a good parent-child relationship. In another word, it means this. When child, a child plays a critical role in making family a thankful place. If a child is not happy in the family, family cannot be a thankful place. Child, even though doesn't have much you know, authority and power back then, but Paul is saying that you have a critical role to play. Paul is empowering the children. And now, let me ask you, what is a happy church? We already know the happy family is where you know, children are happy, right? What about the church too? What about the house church? You know, those of you new to our church, 
we have a small group ministry called the house church and uh, usually Fridays we all get together small groups and then we share the meals and then we sing a song and we have a basically small group worship service and the sermon is very short so it's very good and uh, and then you talk about everybody talk about uh, what you're going through and they pray for one another it's a really 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 you know for me sometimes you know highlights of my week is a house church going to you know different house churches and then you know participating is a great joy now my big question is do our children enjoy house church as much as adults that's the question seriously Paul is a challenging children that you have a critical role he is empowering the underdogs now let me go to the parents because I have a lot to talk about the parents. Parents, he said, do not exasperate your children, but educate them in the training and the instruction of the Lord. The word uh, 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 exasperate is a very interesting word. Greek word is a uh, uh, para orgizo. It's a two compound word. Para means alongside, and orgizo means become angry. And the probably best way to translate the do not provoke your children. Do not provoke your children. I think Paul is a real good observer of family life back then. He sensed the children's frustration and suffering under the dictatorial fathers, which was common. And Paul is saying that's not how we build a spiritual God-fearing family. Parents, do not exasperate, frustrate, provoke children. How? So, do you, I'm parents, how do we exasperate our children? Whenever we put our own plan for our children above the Lord's, you know, God's way for our children. Anytime we have our own arbitrary, you know, goal or, you know, objective for our children's, whatever success and well-being, and they don't reach it, we become a very, very, we are like a disgruntled, you know, customers. I took care of you and you couldn't do this, you know, kind of. We, we, got, a, we got very upset. Now, I want to talk about our church people. So those are new, uh, you know. Okay, you will see the side of our church, okay? We'll show you the uh, underskirt of our church, our, our, sh our shortcomings and weakness, okay? This is something. <coughs> we really want to obey God in our church, and God's main command commandment is to love one another as I loved you, so that the world, when the world sees that, you are my disciple. That's the greatest commandment of our Lord Jesus from John, John chapter 13. Love one another as Christ loved us. And I think we do. Among adults. Now, when it comes, and then we also, uh, with that, we also try to uh, obey the Lord Jesus' commands to reach out to everybody who doesn't know him. Because knowing Jesus transformed you know, my life and many of us alive here. The best thing happened to my life is meeting Jesus. So we do that. Now, 
First, we have to reckon one thing before we you know, end this year. What about our children? Once again, do our children enjoy church as an adult angel? Three weeks ago, I attended, I went to the children's service, and I saw alarming picture of a fourth, fifth, sixth grader. These three boys sitting in there, and our children ministry is excellent. You know, Rita and all the teachers, you know, they, 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 they do a great job. But the worship services are catered to the younger children. You know, they sing songs like the Father Abraham, have a many son, and they go, you know, whatever, you know, the, all the motions, you know, all that. That doesn't do any good to, I mean, that doesn't attract the fourth, fifth, sixth graders. They're all like sitting down like this. They're like this. And I'm watching them. It really, really alerted me that unknowingly, unintentionally, we are raising the worst unbelievers in the midst of us. Because the reason I say worst is they are church people. These kids are born in the church, grew up in the church, but for them, church is nothing but a boredom. If I interview them, they'll say the best thing in the Sunday is lunchtime. Not a Sunday school, not a worship, but a lunchtime. That's what they will say. And, uh, and when they go to college, 100% I'm sure that they will not go to the church. Forget it. And then two weeks ago, I had a f old friends visiting us from California. You know, there's old church members that I started, you know, 25 years ago. And they are now, you know, the singles, used to be singles, now all the parents of the teenagers and college students. And some of them, they told me how far their children <laughs> left God, left the church. And same story. When they were in high school, their heart was close to God, and they don't want to go to church anymore. They have to drag them every Sunday. You know, everything that happened, third, fourth, fifth graders. If we don't take care of this, you know, older children, we're in deep trouble. And he made me cry and pray every day since then. And I, I you know, Rita and uh, others told me before, but I didn't get the you know, magnitude of the problem, and I saw it. While we are saving other people, we are losing our children. What is, this is a heartbreaking. So that's the bad news, but we have a good news. <laughs> good news. God is gracious. God doesn't reveal the just problem. God showed us a way to really work it out. So we have a plan of action. One, we're going, I want to call more teachers for the, especially brothers, for the supposed fifth, sixth graders. These guys need a strong man mentorship. Really. Not not abusive. Not a physicalist, you know, but a you know, man, man. They need a man. Or it's okay. Strong sisters. You, you know, you can step you, you know, you love to, you know, mess up with this kind of, you know, those challenging little boys. You please let me know. I love to, you know. I yeah, I always tell that I had the best fourth grader teacher. You know, without her I wouldn't be here today. So you know, sisters, you're more than welcome to. But now the commitment is this. Starting some second Sunday of December, we're going to have a 10 o'clock service. We will have an early service, 10 to 10.50, mini service. One song, short prayer, short sermon, and that's it. 
But, uh, you know, that's, well, you know, when I mention that, somebody said, oh, now I can play golf. <laughs> okay. This is uh, for the, you know, uh, teachers for children and then eventually junior high school. We don't have any junior high school ministry, but eventually we want to. Our high school group is, uh, you know, stable. We really thank God for Han and the number of high school, you know, volunteers. Our high school, okay, maybe I'm just, I mean, you know, I don't know what I'm talking about. If high schoolers, please correct me. You can, you can tell me the real honest truth, I, you know. I just feel like those of you know older children, boys. You let me know afterwards, then we'll work out. But point, we really ask you know people to step up, and those who step up, we want you to teach at least three to six months each time, not just a one month rotation for other children, and also children teachers. You're going to come to this morning service, then early service, ten o'clock service, so that you will be you know, so that. You will not miss the service, and you will be really empowered through the worship and the word, and you can go and serve. So we want to upgrade our children ministry, older children ministry, and junior high school ministry. That is a major ministry plan for next year. Reason why? Otherwise, we will exasperate our children. We will frustrate them. You know, they come to church not by their own choice but by our by parental force. And then I pray that the next starting next year, I turn around and this older kid, they will love to come to the church and they love to you know talk to their teachers and they love to you know dig into the Bible. Because if we don't catch them when they were preteen, forget it, high school is too late. We really, really need to take care. Let me move on quickly to the uh, last point. Slave and masters. The most radical passage in Paul's Christian household code comes from this section of a slaves and masters. Many people are very uncomfortable about topic of slavery in the Bible because here Paul seemed to endorse the slavery at the time. So, you know, liberal people are upset. That, ah, this is a Christianity. It's just, you know, another oppress, you know, oppression. You know. And the conservative people, they say, ah, you know, this is, you know, slavery is no problem. You know, whatever. You know. And then, you know, some, uh, sadly in America, slavery was uh, biblically justified, uh, you know, a few hundred years ago. Right? It's sad. This is why Flannel O'Connor, you know, the great Roman Catholic woman writer, Flannery O'Connor, I recommend our short story, incredible. Flannery O'Connor says, South, American South, is hunted by Christ. Instead of a hunted mansion, she says, South, which claimed to be a Bible belt, is actually hunting Christ because of a slavery. She's absolutely right. So people are uncomfortable about biblical mention of slavery, but I want to tell you this. When you look at the Paul's instruction to slave and their master today, you will find out Paul's words about slavery, slaves, and relationship of slave and master is nothing less than the radical revolutionary. Nobody talk about slave and master in this way. 
So let's look at it. Paul said, Slave, obey your earthly masters with respect, fear, and the sincerity of a heart just as you would obey Christ. Now, back then slaves were considered, they were not considered as a human. There was no human rights for slaves. Slaves didn't have any basic human rights. Even the great philosopher Aristotle said, you know how he defines slaves? Slaves are articulate animals. That's what the Aristotle said. Slaves are articulate animals. The difference between domesticated animal and slave, the animal can speak a human language, but the slaves can speak the human language. That was a common notion of slave. Slaves were not considered as humans. They are assets. They're like your car or your TV or your computer today. You could actually sell and then you know, buy the you know, slaves. And Paul, actually when he said, slaves, obey your master as you obey the Christ, he is actually bringing dignity and then authority and empowerment and freedom to slaves. Paul is saying that you are as full members of the kingdom of God as a, your master or anybody. Actually, you know, other, so many other Paul's writings, such as Galatians 3.26, Paul said, In Christ Jesus we are all children of God through faith, and all of you are baptized into Christ, have closed yourself with Christ. There is a neither Jew nor Gentile nor slave or free, nor there is a male or female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. So, Paul was actually recognizing, slave, you are no lesser member, lesser citizens of a kingdom of God. You are a full member of God's <laughs> kingdom. And do you remember last week when I read the, uh, that, uh, the letter of a Pliny the Younger to the Emperor Trajan? There was a full letter, the Roman you know, governor of a northern, uh, today's a northern Turkey, wrote his emperor about his dealing with his persecution of Christians in 112 you know, uh, AD, or common era. In that letter, he mentioned that he tortured the two deaconesses, two woman deacons of the church, to know more about the, uh, about the Christianity and do toward the two deaconesses. Do you remember? They were slaves. So who are the leaders of a woman, leaders of the church that Pliny the Younger, the governor, was persecuting? For slaves. Some people said there were other deaconesses, but instead of other citizens, slave has no right. So without any cause, he just tortured them to find more. But fact is this, New Testament church, early church, slaves were very active. They had a leadership in the church. Isn't that incredible? Slave. They were not considered as humans by others. But when it comes to Christian household, they are as a full member of God's kingdom as anybody else. And they even exercise the leadership. And for me, the most radical part of this story is verse 9. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. I hope you underline your Bible, if you have a Bible, the same way. 
You don't use the word master and slave with the expression same. They are not symmetrical relationship. They are asymmetrical, qualitatively different beings and class. But Paul said, as a slave, you serve your master wholeheartedly. Actually, Bible verses wholeheartedly is a Greek word is from your soul. Slaves, serve your master from bottom of your heart or soul. Just that language is strong. It's because, you know, that actually Paul was calling, Paul is saying that Jesus said, if you're going to be, you know, Jewish people that love the Lord with your, all, all your heart and mind and soul and strength, that's the same language Paul used that a slave, serve your master from your soul, with your soul. And then he, then, then he turned around the masters, treat the slave in the same way. Nobody in Greco-Roman history ever put slave and master in such a commensurate, symmetrical relationship. I don't know about you. It gives me you know, goosebumps. In today's term, it's like a CEO, billionaire, and then he's you know, a gardener, or he's a chauffeur, or he's a butler, you know. They are kind of sitting together and sharing their life together. This is a radical social order that Christ is forming in the midst of us. Rich and poor, sick and health, educated and non-educated. You know, your worldly status has no bearing in the kingdom of God. We are all brothers and sisters. And ultimately, we are slaves of Christ. We are mutually serving one another. This is why early church was so powerful. And I want to share you with you one book. Since it's a thing, you know, Christmas time, I mean, the holiday is coming. If you want to know more about Christianity, I, I mean, even Christians, check it out, this book, Rise of Christianity, written by Rodney Stark. Rodney Stark is a university professor from Baylor. In Baylor, top professor called a university professor. And literally, Baylor buy them with a month. They pay God twice more than their top professors in Baylor. And Rodney Stark is a really incredible uh, new church historian because he, by trade, he's a sociologist. He's a sociologist. So he's using sociological approach and data to review Christian history. So many of his books are so refreshing. It's different from other Christian history books that I read. So any book written by Rodney Stark is highly recommendable, and he writes so well. He writes in such a common language. He's a great writer. And uh, in that book, the title, if you look at that, uh, the, the uh, story is this. How does the obscure marginal Jesus movement become the dominant religious force in the Western world in a few centuries? And he gave, let me show you the other, other one. He actually, with a sociological approach, he kind of checked out the possible number of Christians at the time. He said, right around, right after, you know, just a, you know, less than a decade of Jesus, you know, death and resurrection, he assumed there's about 1,000. Even though, you know, Book of Acts, there's 3,000 converted, but he was talking about some maybe fell away, whatever, 1,000. Percentage of population, I cannot even say it was 0.0017%. And then 100 years later, end of the first century, at the most, 7,500. 200 
by 200 years, about a little over 200,000. By 300 centuries, now we're going to 6 million. This is when the uh, Emperor Decian was, uh, was a persecuting Christian empire wide. And then all of a sudden there's a jump in 350. Do you know what happened between 300 and 350? Those of you didn't fall asleep in your Western civilization class, what happened? 313, Emperor Constantine made a Christianity a legal religion through the Edict of Milan. And the emperor became a Christian, and everybody wants to brown nose of emperor, all the government officials and their family. They all start going to the church, and that's why the massive church growth took place in the middle of the you know, fourth century. But Rodney Stock, he basically said this the reason early church became a dominant religion in the Greco Roman Empire is because early church was a sociological miracle. Sociological miracle. People cannot relate to one another, became so close to each other, care for each other. For instance, Christian women enjoyed substantially higher status within Christian church than those women, you know, secular women. And then Christianity was an urban movement. And a lot of New Testament churches was you know, urban churches. And Christianity revitalized Greco-Roman series by providing basically all kinds of social welfares. For instance, cities filled with the homeless and the impoverished poor people, Christianity offered the charity as well as hope. Cities filled with the newcomer strangers, Christians once again welcomed them. And when cities filled with the orphans and widows, Christians provided again welfare for them. When especially when cities were hit by the plagues and epidemics, and even you know uh, uh, people that they back then when there's epidemic, everybody just a desert the you know town. They just go, they just go to the countryside, and many of them leave their own sick family member because they know that you know they can help and they get sick, so they just leave them. Christians is the one who stood behind and took care of them. And there is a even, you know, group of Christians called the Parabolon. Paraboloni literally means reckless ones because they care for those, uh, you know, victims of plagues selflessly. And many of them died, but they're the one who beat the plagues. If you look at the history of our, you know, uh, hospital in the, in the Western civilization, it started by the church father named Basil the Great. He started a hospital clinic for the first time, I mean, there was other clinic too, but a clinic back then is all the rich people. He built a clinic for the poor and the slaves. And the unique thing about that is that after they got the operation, he kept them in the clinic until they completely recovered their health, and then they sent him, and he did it free with the resources of the church. <laughs> That's the beginning of a hospital in the Western civilization in fourth century. The reason Christianity worked in Greco-Roman world is that we recreate human relationship in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Because in Christ, we are brothers and sisters. In Christ, we are nothing but children of God. And So 
Let me just say last word and then end here. Earlier in Ephesians 1.3, Paul said, Praise be to God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, blessed us in heavenly realms with every spiritual blessings in Christ. You and I, those who believe in Jesus Christ, we are the heir of God's kingdom. Heir means we inherit everything. Do you envy heir? Do you envy the children of Bill Gates and all those billionaires? You know our father is uh, infinitely richer than any rich people in this world. We are his heir. God bless us so much. So serving other people is not an obligation. It's actually joy and privilege because our God is a servant God. God who sacrificed himself for us. And that's for us, serving one another, regardless of our socioeconomic status and our whatever relational you know, leverage, it doesn't matter. Our end goal is to love one another, serve one another, as our Christ has done for us. And especially on this Thanksgiving Sunday, I want to call parents and adult members. Let's make it for us not just a you know, happy church, thank, thankful church for the adult children, especially those that are rambunctious, rambunctious, you know, the preteen boys. Let's really reach out to them. Let's pray.